All right, amen. Uh, let's get right into it. Romans, if you haven't met me again, my name is Paul Stiver. I'm on staff with Hope. I'm one of the elders here at Hope Lower Town, and you can tell because I'm wearing a shirt that says Hope Lower Town. Uh, that's how you know. Uh, no, this, actually, if you do want a shirt and you feel like, man, that looks comfortable, it is actually very comfortable, you go to hopecc.com store and you can lock one of these bad boys down. Um, so don't, don't be shy about that. Let's get into Romans, though. We're in week 29 of this series. So again, when we uh, at Hope, we like to grab a book of the Bible and kind of walk through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we've already made it 29 weeks. We've, we're in the second part, as it were, of this uh, journey through Romans and a part that's called, How Should We Then Live? Or How Then Should We Live? Um, and I want to just get right into it. Uh, on something we maybe are all guilty of, or maybe you're like, you're too cool, uh, and that is uh, our love for decor signs. Um, we, uh, sometimes my wife and I go to, into stores and just make fun of the crazy signs and what they say. This is, I think, our favorite. Life is, about, uh, life is not about waiting to, for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. This is one of the best. Uh, there's so many good ones, though. Uh, this one's classic. Sprinkles are for cupcakes, not for toilets. You put that one in your bathroom. I'll let you do the math on that one. Uh, live, laugh, love. I mean, come on. What if you forgot that, guys? You need a sign in your house that reminds you. Some of you maybe have this sign and now you're feeling isolated. You shouldn't. This is a very fine. We all do this, right? Uh, we actually have one of the one in our house says, love you more. Uh, and that, uh, that's a classic. And then the last one I have here is, uh, and they lived happily ever after. And you get that mix of fonts. Got to get that italics in there. Um, and uh, so I was thinking about this phrase, though. This is actually the worst segue ever. I was thinking about the phrase happily ever after. Where does it come from, right? It's typically in cartoons of fairy tales. Uh, and it's kind of at the end, the, the, there's like some sort of union and peace. And, and they lived happily ever after. In this case, it's referring to you probably hang it in your house after your wedding and uh, um, and so, but we see it typically in fairy tales. And so it had me thinking about fairy tales, which kind of have a few different formulas. One, there's always kind of something mystical or something uh, like a broom that can move or like a teacup that talks. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, that's like a specific movie. Beauty and the Beast. Um, and then there's like, there's obviously villains, obstacles, supernatural challenges and things that have to be overcome. And then there's a hero and some sort of union at the end and they live happily ever after. And actually this week we're looking at, I'm going to title this sermon, The True Happily Ever After from Romans 7, 1 through 6. I promise that's going to make way more sense as we go. But so we're, we're just transitioning now into Romans chapter 7, which means if you're a math person, we just finished chapter Six. Um, so let's recap real quick. Chapter six, a couple things that we had to remember as we've gone through now. Chapter six, and the Apostle Paul in this time in this letter is kind of asking these big questions to no one in particular and then answering them is, and that's the way he's making his argument. Uh, I think it's called rhetorical argument. And so the first one he asks right at the beginning of chapter six is, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's highlighted in this gospel that actually uh, grace always overcomes sin. And it actually shows God off all the more. So he says, should we just keep sinning then so God looks even better? And he says, absolutely not. And in that, he reminds us, and, and his answer, he reminds us who we are. He gives a lot of identity pieces in that part of chapter six. We'll look at some of them again today. And then the second question he asked in the second part of Romans 6, which Brian looked at last week, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? 
that actually the shock of the gospel, here's the reality, this is the shock. You can do, if you're in Christ, you can do whatever you want because he's covered your sin once for all. You can actually do whatever you want and not face condemnation for it. So then the question you'd ask is, should we just do whatever we want? And he says, absolutely not. And this is where he, at first he asked, who are you? In this section of Romans 6, he says, whose are you? And he says, now, you don't have this Lord of sin. You've been made new. You have a new Lord, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you start to experience sanctification, big word for being made holy by Jesus. You start to bear fruit. And so that's kind of the questions in Romans 6 that, that are being answered. And now we get to Romans 7. And I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here is illustrate what he just told us in Romans 6. And so this passage is commonly called the marriage analogy. And we'll come back to that in one second. But right now, let's just read the text, walk through it, and see what it has to say. Starting in verse 1 of, of chapter 7 here, it says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she will be released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law, and if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so that's our passage, just six verses, but it's actually one of the most dense passages in all of Romans, probably the one that most biblical scholars get muddied in the waters on, and hopefully we can make it more clear today. So here's where we're going. First, we're going to ask, what is the marriage analogy? What is this? Why does he say this? Second, we're going to look at the gospel as rescue. And then three, we're going to get to that title, the true happily ever after. And so let's get right into it here. What is the marriage analogy? Why, what is this analogy? So he starts again in verse one, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So we've got this idea of the law, and we've talked about it all throughout the series. There's kind of two versions of the law that in salvation history we see. Salvation history just means the storyline of the Bible up to this point. The first one that we see is actually the little L law. And that comes right away at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And it's the idea of the knowledge of good and evil that they get when they uh, bite the fruit, which everybody always says is an apple. It doesn't actually say uh, what if it was a papaya? <laughs> all right. Uh, so, all right. So they, that's the little L law. Uh, when they bite the papaya, they get the knowledge of good and evil. It's written on their hearts. This idea of the law is written on their hearts. And we see that right away in Genesis chapter 4. When Cain wants to murder his brother, Abel, and God says, don't you know sin is crouching at your door? Cain knows it's wrong, and he still does it. We see this even further in Romans 1. Paul calls this the ordinance of God. He says, though they know God's righteous decree, they reject it. And then even in Romans 2, he calls this the law of conscience that's written on their hearts that Gentiles or people that aren't Jewish and don't come under this other version of law, which we'll talk about in a second, are under a law themselves. So that's little L law. 
That's from the beginning of time, knowledge of good and evil, ordinance of God, law of conscience, and we're under that. But then later in the storyline comes the big L law, or the Mosaic law, Exodus chapter 20, when God calls the Israelites to himself, and then all the way through the rest of the next couple books of the Bible, he's giving them this other law. This is the, the Mosaic law, or the capital L law, the old covenant. So God gives them that law. And what Paul's saying here is no matter what, you are under this law. And look at the language he uses there. He calls it binding. You're under this. You're bound by it. Later in the passage, he's going to call it being captive. We're all captive to this law, which implies a need for deliverance. And the passage seems to imply that in order to be delivered from this captivity, there has to be a death. And so we actually see the law described by Paul in Romans a couple different ways. First, in chapter 5, he says the law came in to make things better. No, in verse 20, he says the law came in to increase the trespass. The more rules there are, the more you can break, the worse it gets. And even further, he says in Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. There's, there's no longer this, this dominion of law. How does that work? And then in Romans 7, he's going to say, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law is increasing the trespass, but the law is actually acting as gasoline on the fire of sin. What? The law did what? The law was supposed to come in and make people more holy, make them desire God more, and in fact, it's making the problem Worse, I can't say too much more. I'll ruin Brian's sermon for next week, so I have to stop uh, there. But the Bible's presenting a universal problem, and that problem is sin. And later the law comes in and actually doesn't make the problem better. It makes it worse. And so therefore, we need release. We need freedom from this captivity. And so we looked at Romans 1. We're actually going to skip the marriage analogy for a second and look at verse 4. 7-1, we'll look at verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So we're going to look at verses one, which we looked at in verse four here. That's going to help us understand the analogy. We're going to plug this back in. We need to see this though. He describes us as those who have died to the law. How have we died to the law? Through the body of Christ, in order that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised. All right, so now let's plug that back into the marriage analogy. Again, verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. All right, so this is the marriage analogy. We got a couple of things. There's this, this law of marriage, this covenantal union that takes place. If the husband dies, this, this woman is released from that law. If, she, if the husband's still alive, the law, if she takes another, the law actually condemns her, right? It calls her an adulteress. It, it's a word of condemnation over her. But if the husband die, dies, she doesn't need to, there's no condemnation. She's free to marry another. So we have to ask, who is this husband? And that's where we plug in verse 4. What, what, what verse 4, what Paul's trying to tell us is both husbands are Jesus. In this analogy, both husbands are Jesus. 
He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That would be the first husband, so that you may belong to another, to him, the second husband who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Let's go, let's go further, plug this back in all the way. Starting in verse two. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her, if G, if her husband, who is Jesus, united to us under the law, dies... Okay, so if we're united to Jesus and he dies under the law, we're released from that law. And we are now able to marry another. And again, Jesus is both husbands. So who's the another? This other man or the, him who has been raised. So what he's saying is, what Paul's saying and using this marriage analogy, he's saying, in Christ now, there is no more word of condemnation. There's no more law. There's no law. We're under no law. We were free to marry another, this risen Jesus, and we are united to him. Therefore, as Romans 6 and now 7 is telling us, we are dead to sin, dead to the law, dead to condemnation, and dead to death. And then verse 4 is going to go forward and tell us again what has happened. We may belong to another, the second husband, the resurrected Jesus. In order that we may bear fruit, for God. Friends, this is the craziest transfer in the Bible. We're under this law. We're under this thing that only brings condemnation to us. And Christ comes to be like us, dies to the law. It's though we die with him. And now we can belong to him who has been raised, the second husband, who's also Jesus. But you might be saying, well, wait, 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 wait. I didn't die. I didn't die. I'm still alive. What are you talking about? Well, in the example, the wife didn't die either. This is the idea of covenantal oneness. Brian got into the, this the last couple weeks. I didn't die, but you did. The Bible calls this mystical union. It calls this union with Christ. There's something that happens when we put our faith in Jesus that says, though we are united with him. This is where uh, you guys, I just want to instill a little FOMO. If you haven't taken our systematic theology class, I want you to feel a little FOMO right now, a little fear of missing out. Because union with Christ, we spend a whole week on it. It's one of the most beautiful doctrines in the Bible. And we see it right away in Romans chapter 6. It says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See that? Old husband baptized into his death. New husband. Christ was raised. We're united to him in this new life. Again in Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is union stuff. When you put your faith in Christ, this union happens. And we become new. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Look at what this says. Dead to sin, alive to God. What a transfer all because we were united to him and he died one more time. Just to drive it home, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. No, you were not. Yes, you were. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love the way that he ends that passage because it's a personal reality. He's experienced this. He says, it is as though I died with Christ and now the law is dead to me and I live to God even as Jesus lives to God. All through this union with Christ, the old you has died. So then I want to get into something. I want to take a little sidebar and highlight how the gospel is rescue. And that's what we're seeing in this passage. And then the storyline of the Bible. In salvation history, again, the problem of the Bible is sin. Sin is us rejecting God and choosing our own way and doing things our way. The problem we see when we look around in the world today is not that people aren't just getting better. We got to all make improvements. The problem we have lies in our hearts. We have sin. We do wrong things. We choose wrong things. We hurt people. We don't even care about it. But the biggest thing we do is reject God and his ways. And so the gospel is rescue, which means we need more than progress. We need more than just gradual improvement and betterment. We need more than just to get a little bit better each day. We need more than just trying our hardest to be a good person. No, the gospel and what we're seeing in Romans 7 is we need rescue. We need deliverance to come from outside of us. We need rescue. That's what he says in verse 5. Look right here. In verse 5 of Romans 7, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is the entire story of the Bible and the entire story of the world and why things are so wrong. Because sin is at work in us, bearing fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. In Christianity, we have this doctrine of conversion. That we need something to happen. We need to be awakened. We need our eyes to be open to see the things of God. Verse 5 does not paint a picture of someone interested in God. I, all it paints a picture of is someone continually wanting to pursue their own way and totally oblivious to it. In other words, verse 5 paints a picture of a self-savior. Someone who needs rescue. It's going to be a little bit of an obscure culture reference, um, but this is a picture from the Seinfeld, the sitcom, the series finale of Seinfeld. Some of you uh, were born after Seinfeld became a show, or after it ended. But So this is the Seinfeld, the cast of Seinfeld that had nine seasons, and actually a rule on the show. I actually think Seinfeld really illustrates the problem we have. The rule on the show was no hugging and no learning. The cast was not supposed to hug or learn. A lot of sitcoms, right? There's this moral lessons and people learn, not on Seinfeld. This is the series finale. They're in jail because someone was in trouble and they all made fun of them and there was like a fake law. They were, instead of helping, they just made fun of someone that was in trouble. And under this fake law, they end up going to jail. That's how the show ends. They end the show as the same people making fun of things. I think they're criti criticizing a sweater. They're talking about nothing. It's the same thing they did the entire show. And I think that actually hits on what verse 5 is telling us. That we don't actually make progress on our own. That's why I love Seinfeld. They're the same people at the end of the show. 
And look where they are, bound in prison. I found a quote from an author. I kind of pieced it together. The guy's name, it's one of the cooler names, is Paul Kingsnorth. What a cool name. Obviously, his first name is cool, but Kingsnorth. Um, probably, he says, probably the central story of our culture, what I, which I think has replaced a lot of the religious stories that used to be at the heart of our culture, is the story of progress. What we say is, it is possible through human ingenuity to create a utopia. And so we have the story that we believe to which everything continues to get better every generation, and our job is to keep that process going. He says, I think that once you believe that, then you are stuck in a very linear narrative. You're unable to see, you're unable to learn much from the past on your own, and you're probably, probably unable to learn much from the mistakes of the present as well. What's he saying? I think he's agreeing with Seinfeld here. When we buy into this narrative of progress and that we're just going to figure it out in gradual steps over time, we actually become more obscured, more blinded to who we really are. This, this is where the gospel as rescue becomes really offensive. Because if, if I can figure things out on my own, just with a series of steps of betterment, then I'm in control. But if I need rescue, if I need someone to come from outside of me and deliver me, if I can't do this on my own, what does that say about me? And my goodness. So what he's saying is we, when we buy into that, we actually are missing the point. We can't even see ourselves clearly. We end up like this dog. and saying this is fine as everything burns around us. I'm just going to do better tomorrow. When we buy this self-hope narrative, we can't see clearly that we can't create long-term real change in ourselves. That's what he's saying. What we need is rescue. We need hope. We need a different story. I typed in rescue, best rescues into Google. Uh, has anyone, this is, maybe you wouldn't recognize it from this frame. This is a YouTube video in Romania from 2013. And what we're looking at is a well, and there's a toddler stuck in the well. And this is a crazy video. It's like seven minutes long. And the, there's a million police and EMTs and family and friends gathered around this well trying to get this toddler out. They've got an excavator. They're digging. They're doing everything they can. They're trying to get this toddler out. You can hear him crying. He's stuck. It's a dramatic scene. It's hopeless. It's frenzied. The machines they're using don't work. The technology they're using doesn't work. Nothing can save this toddler who's stuck. Except for there is one. This is a 14-year-old boy. He's kind of slender. He's got very narrow shoulders. He fits the mold of someone who could save this little boy. And he volunteers to do it. He gets hooked up to a tether and he drops into this well. And he goes, he plunges himself into the darkness and he grabs the toddler. He unites himself, as it were, with the toddler. He kicks his feet twice and they pull him out and he pulls out the toddler. He rescues the toddler. And the first thing the dad does is grab his son and hug and kiss him. There's joy, there's relief. The gospel is rescue. See, this boy risked his life. He was the only one who could save this kid. He risked his life. But the Bible is telling us, what Romans 7 is telling us is that Jesus plunges himself into our darkness. He becomes like us. 
He unites himself fully to us and he rescues us. There is no self-salvation plan in the gospel. Because Jesus doesn't just risk his life like this boy, he gives his life. He becomes like us in the darkness and risks and gives his life to rescue us, to free us from trying to save ourselves, to bring us into relief and joy and freedom. He makes the old new, he makes the dead alive. I was thinking, actually, this is wild. Sammy mentioned that her and I co-lead a Bible study on the U of M campus. We meet, that's where I went as a student as well. I went to the U of M. Uh, I was not a believer at the time. I've spent much of my time drinking and partying. And uh, it was wild. So last year, I walk into this uh, building to lead our Bible study on the U of M campus for the first time. And I put a picture up here because they, they renewed this building. It's now a coffee shop. But I walk into this building. This is now years removed from me being a student. And I'm, I'm about to lead this Bible study. And I'm looking around and I'm like, why does this look familiar? What is this place? And I look on the wall and I'm like, oh my gosh, I used to play beer pong in this room. Anybody beer pong guys? Uh, I, used to, I used to play, I, was, I used to come to this when it was a fret and get blackout drunk. So drunk I couldn't even remember what I did the night before. And here I am all these years later leading a Bible study in this room. The building itself renewed, me renewed. I told the students, there's Sammy, you can see her. I told the students I was going to put them up. So they're famous now. Um, so good for them. How did that happen? Did I stumble upon God one day? Figure it all out? Make enough progress to be a good enough person to lead a Bible study? Absolutely not. God came in and rescued me. He changed me. And now, instead of bearing fruit for death, bearing fruit for life, not blackout drunk, but leading a Bible study. This is what the gospel does. This is what rescue does. You get new desires, a new Lord, a new you. My baptism verse was this one from 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I guarantee right now, you're feeling not new. Many in this room right now are feeling like, I've got this thing, I can't change it, I'll never be able to change it. I'm stuck. I'm trapped in this well. What, what Paul's telling us is, stop looking to yourself to fix it. In the gospel, there's no self-saviors. We don't need progress, we need newness. So look to that rescue. C.J. Green says it this way, usually when you hear about progress, it is something to hustle for. You must get on its side, invest early or be left behind. But in Christianity, everything has been given. Anyone who wants it can have it. The catch is we earn none of it. And we would all prefer to earn. We would all prefer to fight toward progress rather than accept it when it comes to us as a gift. As Archibald McLeish once wrote, the world was always yours. You would not take it. What does it mean to take it? In this case, experience shows we have to be stripped of presents, give up our crusades for control. We have to get kicked in the butt. Real progress, in other words, often feels like regress, not something you hustle for, but something you fall into. What's he saying? He's saying grace means that in order to have real change, in order to have the things you really want in life, 
You have to give up control. You have to allow yourself to be rescued. You want peace and change and true love and freedom? We've got to stop looking to ourselves. We've got to die, as it were, and receive these things. We've got to throw ourselves all in with Jesus. And that's where we get to the true happily ever after. For those that might know these two old white guys, one is J.R.R. Tolkien, the other is C.S. Lewis. Two of the titans of authorship that have given us incredible books, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, these series. And they were friends. They have a complicated relationship, but at one point they were friends. And Tolkien explained to Lewis that the gospel is the true happily ever after. One author says it this way. Tolkien explained to Lewis that the story of Christ was the true myth at the very heart of history and at the very root of reality. Whereas the pagan myths were manifestations of God expressing himself through the minds of poets using the images of their mythopia to reveal fragments of his eternal truth. The true myth of Christ was a manifestation of God expressing himself through himself, with himself, and in himself. God in the incarnation had revealed himself as the ultimate poet who was creating reality, the true poem or the true myth, in his own image. This is a divinely inspired paradox. Myth was revealed as the ultimate realism. What's he saying? He's, he's telling Lewis that all stories have to be derivative of something. They didn't just come out of nowhere. And he's saying the gospel is the true story, the one at the very heart of history, the one at the very root of reality. He continues, the consolation of fairy stories. Now here's, here's where we get. He says, the joy of the happy ending or more correctly of the good catastrophe. He calls this the you catastrophe. It's the moment in something where there's a sudden turn that turns to joy, unexpected joy. He says, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat and in so far as evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of this world, poignant as grief. He's saying every fairy tale, every myth, every story that is worth its salt has this moment where sorrow turns to joy in an unexpected way that is more poignant than grief. And he's saying all of those are derivative of the gospel where in the gospel we get joy beyond the walls of this world, which is why Paul uses the marriage analogy. There's a few reasons he uses the marriage analogy. Obviously, anyone in that culture and everyone today is familiar with marriage. We get it. We understand what marriage is. But more so, Paul wants the realities, the two realities of Romans 6. One, who are you? You are in Christ. And two, whose are you? You belong to Christ. You now serve him as Lord. He wants them to sink into our hearts. So he uses marriage. But third, Paul uses it because he knows the Bible tells the story of the true happily ever after. Of the one good catastrophe that happens that turns our sorrow into joy. Joy beyond the walls of this world. So the Bible is actually a story of a marriage. We're going to cruise through it. But Genesis 2 starts right away 
with the marriage. It says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So we start right off the bat with a story of union, one flesh union, two becoming one, and a bride, a groom singing over his bride, rejoicing over his bride. As we go on in the story, we get to the prophets, and we see all throughout the prophets, God uses the language of a husband to his people. It says here in Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Continuing in Isaiah, it says this. Great passage to use in weddings. Isaiah 62, verse 3 and 4, it says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of the Lord your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. How does this rejoicing happen? We've got this picture of a rejoicing God, delighting over his people, singing over his people. But if the storyline of the Bible is one of sin, how can this rejoicing happen? Christ becomes like us. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What's Paul saying? He's saying Jesus had to become like us. He had to unite himself to us. He had to be bound like us. He had to be held captive like us under the law, born of a woman. He had to plunge himself into the darkness in order to redeem us, in order to rescue us. This is the shock of Christmas, right? A little Christmas teaser here for you here in October. That the true happily ever after is not us graduating in a series of steps to be better and better. We find the true happily ever after a baby born in a manger who has come to rescue us, sent by God. One author says it is by far the most amazing miracle of the, of the Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection, and even more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a human and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite humanity will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. What Paul's saying in Romans 7 is Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. And it is a miracle. It's unbelievable that the author of the true fairy tale would write himself into the story as the hero. But he doesn't just write himself in. As Ephesians 5 tells us, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He dies 
The hero comes to the story to gain victory. And how does he do it? Not in power, but in weakness. He dies for us to rescue us. The myth of progress would have us believe that in order for God to accept us, we have to make ourselves beautiful enough for him to think we're okay. But look at what verse 26 of Ephesians 5 says here. He gave himself up for us that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. What we got to see here, friends, is that Jesus is not a reluctant Savior. He doesn't look at your sin and your oldness and your deadness and all the ways you continually rebel against him, reject him, and say, ah, I don't know. No, he delights in his bride and he delights to make us beautiful. He lays down his life to make us beautiful. And then we get the end of the Bible story. We get rejoicing. We get our husband, as it were, Jesus, singing over us, his bride, the church. In Revelation 19, 7 and 8, it says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There's uh, Ron Swanson, the character from Parks and Rec. He says there's two times it's okay for men to cry. One is at funerals and the other is at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so those are the two times it's okay for men to cry. There's obviously one other time that we see men cry quite often. And it is when they're standing as the groom and their bride comes through the doors and they rejoice and they delight and they say, she's beautiful. That's a picture of the true fairy tale. That's Jesus looking at us and throwing a wedding feast for all eternity, the true happily ever after. Friends, there is no greater freedom, no greater freedom in the world than to know you're loved. Why Paul uses the Romans, the marriage analogy is he wants us to know for all time what God thinks of us. He delights in us. And he can do that because Christ has died to make us beautiful. One last quote from Tolkien. He says, I concluded by saying that the resurrection, aka the second husband, this new life, this resurrected savior, the resurrection was the greatest you catastrophe. Again, that moment of unexpected that turns things from sorrow to joy. The resurrection was the greatest you catastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow because it comes from places where joy and sorrow are at one reconciled as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. Of course, I do not mean that the Gospels tell what is only a fairy story, but I do mean very strongly that they do tell a fairy story, the greatest. And here's what he says. We, the storytellers, would have to be redeemed in a manner consonant with our nature by a moving story. Friends, the gospel is the true fairy tale. It's the true happily ever after. It's of this Savior who looks at us when we're ugly and deserving of condemnation and becomes like us to rescue us, and he makes us beautiful. That's the turning point that brings us unexpected joy, joy beyond the walls of this world.
It's the moving story that redeems us, the tale of the true hero who rescues us. It's the true happily ever after, and only in Christ can we have this. So as we close here, do you belong to the risen Jesus, or do you belong to yourself? Have you thrown yourself all in with him? Today's a day, maybe for the first time you can do that. You say, I want in on this true story. I want the Savior who redeems me. I want to know how loved I am. I'm tired of wondering. You can see it right now in the gospel. Put your hope in him and enjoy that love, that union right now. And if you have, if you have trusted in Christ, let's just take a couple songs here in communion and just rejoice in that rescue. Just be reminded that you didn't save yourself. You didn't get here on your own. He's done it all for you and you're in on it. And you'll always be in on it. We're gonna move now to a time of communion. We've got the bread and the juice kind of up here on both sides and a couple songs the worship team will come play. We do this every week because we need to be reminded that uh, the bread, which represents Christ's body, that Jesus became fully like us in order that he could redeem us. And the, and the juice, which represents Christ's blood, that Jesus shed his blood to accomplish that redemption. That we didn't save ourselves, but no, he rescued us. So we take these elements. Let's remember that rescue. We don't ask that you be a member of this church or any church. The only thing we ask is if you've said yes to Jesus, we'd love to have you take this meal and remember what he has done for you with us. I'm going to pray and we're going to play a couple songs and rejoice in that rescue. Heavenly Father, we come to you with all the ways that we try to save ourselves. All the ways that we feel stuck. All the ways that we feel hopeless. All the ways that we feel unlovable. And we just ask that you would allow your grace and your gospel of rescue and your son who sings over us. Would that just wash over us today? Would you change us? Would you make us beautiful? Would you help us to delight, not in our own accomplishments and our own goodness, but no, in the one who's rescued us. Help us to praise you, to sing loudly without shame, without fear, because we know you love us. There's no greater freedom than to know we are loved. And so help us to enjoy and delight in that today. We pray and be with us this week. Help us to be new and experience newness of life this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.